Hey everybody, Michael Cohen here, welcoming you back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, Pandora, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. So if you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment as well. I check all the feedback myself, and it's great to hear from you guys every time I'm able to release a new episode. Today's guest is San Francisco 49ers kicker Robbie Gold, who is the longest tenured kicker in the National Football League and a player who ranks 15th all-time in points, 11th in field goals made. He's made Pro Bowl teams. He's made All-Pro teams. He's kicked in two Super Bowls, one for the Chicago Bears, one for the San Francisco 49ers. He's the Bears' all-time leading scorer, and in 10 career postseason games, he has never missed a kick kicking all 15 of his field goals successfully across a number of postseason appearances. Robbie's career really began a number of years ago, just when he was trying to decide which sport he wanted to play as a high school athlete. Uh, he starred at Central Mountain High School in football, soccer, basketball, and track. He got his kicking genes from his father, who was a three-time All-American soccer player at Lock Haven University, a Division II school in Pennsylvania. His father won a national title there and went on to play in the major indoor soccer league in the United States. And Robbie ultimately decided to pursue football. Even though he had no scholarship offers, he walked on at Penn State University, won the job immediately, and held the starting kicking job for all four years. Uh, he went undrafted, did not get invited to the combine, and so he worked his way into the league the hard way, signing as an undrafted free agent with the New England Patriots. This was a time in 2005 when the Patriots had just won another Super Bowl title and they had a kicker in Adam Vinatieri who was first-team All-Pro and among the best, if not the best, in the league at the time. So Robbie clearly knew that he was going into New England to be a camp body, to compete, and to just see if he could catch the eye of somebody else around the league because the chances of him sticking in New England were not that high. So he battles it out in New England, but ultimately catches on with the Baltimore Ravens. He's there for a few weeks before getting released and finding himself in a position where a lot of specialists find themselves trying to crack into the NFL. Remember, there's only 32 kicking jobs and 32 punting jobs in the National Football League. And so Robbie found himself on the street for a few weeks in the summer and early fall of 2005 before ultimately catching on with the Chicago Bears in early October of 2005. And, and from there, really, uh, the rest his history. You know, he quickly entrenches himself as not only uh, the starting kicker for the Bears, but one of the best kickers in the National Football League. He goes to a Pro Bowl in 2006. He makes a slew of all pro teams that same season, just about every team you can make across different media outlets. Um, and, and he becomes not only a reliable kicker, not only an accurate kicker, but a highly respected cold weather kicker, which, you know, for guys that play in the NFC North or the AFC and NFC East, um, these divisions where there's a, a, a couple of brutal venues in November, December, January. If, if you can find consistent success in those environments and be a difference maker for your team on sloppy tracks or when it's cold or rainy or snowy or windy, uh, those guys have a tremendous amount of respect around the league, and, and Robbie is one of them. He's had 13 seasons with five or fewer missed field goals. He's at 87% for his career average, and he once held the NFL record for consecutive 50-yard field goals made. As I mentioned, when he was in Chicago, he helped lead the Bears to one Super Bowl appearance, though they lost to the Indianapolis Colts, and he finished as the franchise's all-time leading scorer. After that, he spends a partial season with the New York Giants when the Giants made a kicking change partway through the year, and he did not miss a kick with the New York Giants in 2016, and that kind of launched his career into its, its second stanza, if you will. He signs as a free agent with the San Francisco 49ers, a team that is clearly in its ascendancy under head coach Kyle Shanahan, and Robbie makes a career-high 39 field goals in his first season with the 49ers in 2017 and is named second-team All-Pro by Pro Football Focus. Um, he's continued to remain a, a mainstay in that 49ers locker room as a leader and a CBA rep and a player who can be counted on to perform week in and week out, and that's how you become a guy who now ranks 15th all-time in points 
as I mentioned, and 11th all-time in field goals made. It's a pretty remarkable career considering, you know, where he started as a walk-on at Penn State, and it's a testament to, you know, not only his determination and and his skill level, but also just a guy that has the, the mental toughness and mental acuity to stick through the ups and downs of a profession where, you know, you're going to get all kinds of messages from fans when you when you do well and all kinds of even worse messages from fans when you miss a kick and let your team down. And, and so it's a huge credit to Robbie that he's now the, the oldest and longest tenured kicker in the league and a guy who uh, is respected by so many of his peers around the National Football League. Um, his work off the field contributes to that as well. Robbie's Golden Touch Foundation has helped raise more than $3 million for a child's hospital in the Chicago area, as well as different uh, outlets and facilities in his hometown of Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. He does tremendous work through celebrity golf tournaments, helping raise money, and that's, you know, the bulk of his fundraising effort come through those events where he calls on former teammates or other celebrities that he knows from the celebrity golf circuit to come through and, and help raise money for for his specific causes. And he's even gone the entrepreneurial route with his brother-in-law, creating a software program called Eventlify that is basically an event planning uh, software program that you can use for golf tournaments or fundraisers or any large event that needs some sort of hub and nucleus to organize all communication, all management, everything like that. They put together this program and they're working on expanding it and spreading it right now. And and obviously it was born of, of their passion for managing golf events. So all kinds of cool stuff going on for Robbie off the field as well. I think you guys will really enjoy this conversation about football, about life, about all different kinds of things. And so without further ado, let's get into a conversation with San Francisco 49ers kicker Robbie Gold. Well, Robbie, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. I really appreciate you carving a little bit of time out of your off season to chat with me. And you know, of course, I don't think it would be right if I started this show by by asking you anything but about the Super Bowl this past week. And of course, everybody watched it. You've played in two of them. Um, you know, what is it like for you to to watch the game? And does it just bring back a flood of memories? I know you didn't win the two that you were in, but I got to think it's just a thrill to even get to that game. Well, first, thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. It's uh, great to talk with you. And secondly, uh, you know, I, the first one I lost still hurts. The second one I <laughs> lost last year hurts even more. So this year, watching the game and just the way that Tampa Bay was able to control the, the line of scrimmage and uh, taking care of putting pressure on Mahomes. I mean, he ran for like 457 yards. Uh but only gained 33 moving forward, right? So they did a lot of, like, moving the pocket for him. And, uh, you know, Tampa's game plan, they, they did a great job of being able to put pressure on them and stop the run, which is what you got to do to beat Kansas City. Think of any big plays either, which uh, when you do that, that's a recipe for winning. And uh, they just did it at the right game at the right time. And now they're Super Bowl champs, and nobody can take it away from them. You know, obviously, anytime you you reach the Super Bowl, you want to win it, and that would be the capstone to just about anybody's playing career. But I, I do wonder: are there little memories here and there from either the week or the games itself that you still kind of, you know, hold dear as things that you'll never forget, even if the the final scoreboard at zeros didn't read the way you wanted it to? For sure. I mean, both are uh, both games that I played in. Obviously, it's it's an honor to get there. It takes a lot of hard work and. A lot of things have to bounce your way, but I think the biggest part of the Super Bowl is, you know, there's a lot of guys that don't ever get a chance to even play in the game and right. play in the NFL. So you know, I don't take that lightly. I don't, I don't take it for granted. I think the second one where I was able to have my wife's family, my family, and my kids with me, um, you know, my kids were in the stands five rows up from the venue that I played in my first one. And, I think whenever you go through those situations, you always go back to, well, what was the first one like? And then, you know, the second one was a lot different because I had three kids and a wife and a family of my own that I got to enjoy with. And I spent the morning in their room playing catch, talking school, doing schoolwork, you know, doing things that weren't really football related. And then um, had to get ready for the game about 1230. So uh, that's something that I'll never forget. You know, there's a lot of things statistically that, you know, people can admire about your career, but the one that jumps out to me the most is 10 out of 10 in the postseason. Never missed a postseason kick in your career. And, you know, given the pressure, 
given the fact that a lot of those games took place in Chicago, where both the turf and the weather can be unfriendly, depending on, you know, what's going on with snow and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, how did you do that? How do you how do you become a guy who, when the pressure is, is the most it can possibly be in your sport, you're literally perfect and you don't miss? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with understanding, like, who you are as a player, right? You know, I'm not the Sebastian Janikowskis or the guys with the huge legs, so... The only way that I was going to be able to stay in the National Football League and carve out a career for myself was by being accurate. And, you know, I'm a competitor. Uh, you know, I don't look at myself as a kicker. I kind of look at myself as, you know, a receiver, a defensive end, a guy that's going to make an impact on the game. And, and yeah, we might, I don't get 40 snaps a game for sure. But at the end of the day, I know that the ones that are most critical are those six to 10 plays that I'm going to get in a game. And, you know, I like to win and I hate losing even more. So for me, it was just a matter of, show up big for your teammates every week and you know the playoffs are no different than the regular season and um you know i've been very lucky to have a really good run a couple different times throughout the the years uh and i think a lot of that has to do with experience too you know i had a big kick in the second playoff run that we made against seattle and that really kind of spurred my and started my career heading in the direction that it that it's taken kind of the shape that it has over the last 16 years so um, you know, I'm a competitor. I like to win. And, you know, obviously I love seeing the other sideline not celebrating. Yeah. And, and I just realized I read my own chicken scratch handwriting wrong on my notes there. I shortchanged you. You've had 10 postseason games, but you're 15 for 15. So I, uh, I about got to correct that one before we, we go any farther. Um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the mentality part of it. You know, you mentioned how to you, you, you think of yourself as a wide receiver, a DB, somebody who can influence the game on, you know, a, a large scale. And I'm wondering how you kind of juxtapose that uh, with the nerves of somebody who does spend the overwhelming amount of real time during a three-hour football game standing on the sideline. And and I guess what I mean is, from a nerves or anxiousness standpoint, were you somebody that, you know, you really had to learn to manage the feeling in your stomach? Or, or were you always a guy, because you played so many sports in addition to football growing up, to where the pressure didn't really bother you that much? No, I just look at it as I'm living a childhood dream, right? No matter it was in my first season or whether it's in my 16th season, like the reality is, is, you know, if it ended tomorrow, whether it was year two or three, I got a chance to live out a dream, right? And, you know, 16 years later, going into year 17, I now have the ability that, you know, I'm leaving a legacy behind. And for me, uh, I think, that is something that can never be taken away from me. Um, and I'm continuing to build on that legacy. And I think, you know, when you look at the nerves and getting nervous about kicks or pressure kicks or things like that, like at the end of the day, when I wake up in the morning, if I miss it, I'm going to be really disappointed. I'm going to work even harder. If I make it, I'm going to wake up the same guy, three kids, husband, uh, family man and work even harder the next day. So like nothing really changes for me from that perspective. I've tried to always have as much fun as I possibly can playing the game of football, which is again, a childhood dream that I'm getting to live out and I'm getting to do it longer than a lot of people get a chance to do. And especially this late in my career, I'm trying to just relish in the fact of, you know, there's probably not a ton of games left uh, for me. And I'm just trying to soak up every minute and enjoy every opportunity I get. In terms of that childhood dream, I do have to ask you, though, was it tempting at all to, to go into soccer and follow your dad? I'm a soccer guy, so I loved reading about your dad, three-time All-American at the Division Two level, won a national title, scored a bunch of goals, played in the major indoor soccer league as a pro. Um, I know you and your brother played soccer, but were you tempted at all to, to go that route when you were young? Yeah, I mean, we... We definitely looked into every opportunity and avenue. Uh, obviously, to walk on a Penn State was something. Uh, to stay at home, my brother, who's now a coach for the Denver Broncos, he won a Super Bowl. My sister, who uh, graduated from Penn State, she owns an optometry um, shop. You know, it's, it was something for me that I needed to stay close to home. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I get the opportunity uh, to go to a place like Penn State and, and play football at a, at a high level, uh, you know, I was trying to play basketball and soccer there too, but um, just the load of athletics and going eventually on a second year as a full ride uh, made it a little more difficult to be able to do that. 
So all the sports that you play, and I don't necessarily just mean the ones that you could have gone on to play in college, because I know you love golf too, but what is kind of the hierarchy in terms of the ones you enjoy the most or the ones that, you know, you thought you were best at? You know, what's funny is uh, one of the ones I love now that I never played in high school because soccer and football I played in high school in the same season was golf. I've turned to this game that's so similar to kicking and has taken me all over the place. You can play it at any age. It's a lifelong sport and it's something I want my kids to learn how to do or play tennis. Uh, but, you know, if I had to rank like what I love the most, I, I miss high school basketball probably the most out of any <laughs> of them, uh, which is kind of weird to say because it's not even the two passions probably that I had the most uh, passionate, like I would say careers in, right? So, uh, I would definitely go miss high school basketball. Then I would say football, then soccer, and somewhere in there in the summer is playing a lot of golf. Gotcha, gotcha. That's pretty cool. Is it true that in order to uh, help get a, a walk-on shot at Penn State, that your high school principal wrote a letter to Joe Paterno? Well, we had gone to their camps. We had done a lot of stuff. Obviously, we when we put together our tapes back in the day, we're still on VHS. It doesn't go on <laughs> the internet Splice, now. Splicing it together, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we had asked for, you know, the, you, you want to see your character. You know, you want – it's not – like these programs don't get a chance to, like, interview you, right, as a walk-on. So uh, we had asked for a bunch of letters of recommendation, and uh, the principal was definitely somebody um, that we, we wanted to write that letter of recommendation. Um, I wouldn't say that the principal was the, the key factor in me sure. getting to – uh, Penn State, but I think it was definitely helpful that I had a lot of people that vouched for my character and my work ethic and, you know, my ability to play at that level. And, uh, you know, it's nice to have that support even, uh, you know, now 20 years later. Uh, it's crazy, 20 years. Um, 20 years later, after starting college football, uh, to still have that same su- support from those same people. Given the fact that you know, pro sports in general, but especially a position like yours where there are so few of them across the whole league, you know, one per team, maybe two if somebody's stuck on a practice squad. Um, Given the volatility of that and the fact that, you know, in the span of two or three weeks, if a guy misses a few kicks, he can find himself, you know, looking for a new job and vice versa. If a guy was on the practice squad and all of a sudden the guy above him struggles, he's he now gets his chance out of nowhere. Given that volatility, do you think that coming into a situation at Penn State as a freshman, where you had to compete for a job immediately. Do you think that was advantageous in terms of understanding what it's like to be a kicker and how it was going to be for you for, you know, a lot of your career? Yeah, I mean, no matter where I went, I was always going to be the guy that was looking to steal somebody's job, right? I didn't want to sit on the bench. I didn't want to watch someone else do it. So I was going to do everything I could in the weight room to recovery, to kicking, to learning situational football, uh, preparation of watching more film, going through kickoff, uh, schemes, you know, I'm always putting myself in a situation where game days, and I learned this at a young age that I had to figure out, you know, what those were because that was my competitive advantage. Uh, so as far as the volatility in, in the sport, I mean, there's only 32 positions that kickers, punters, and snappers can play, right? And the only time they're bringing somebody in is if either one, you're not doing well, or two, you're hurt. So, you know, the reality is, is you know, when you wake up in the morning, you might not feel great or, you know, something bothers you or you have to understand that other people's jobs on your team are at stake too. So you have to play through injury and you might not be a hundred percent, but you know, you get hurt and they bring somebody else in. That means somebody else on your team's getting cut, which means, you know, they're losing a paycheck for their family. So I've always taken pride in being able to play through everything and anything and, and understand that, yeah, you're a kick away for sure from, from losing your job. Um, but you're also, in a competitive environment where I think that volatility should spur a lot of motivation for you, no matter what age, no matter what your contract is. Uh, and for me, it's been fun to be around my kids who, who push me a, a little bit extra just because I want them to see me playing football and growing up and, and understanding, you know, what it's about. And now I'm watching playoff games with them. And I think uh, those are special moments that a lot of NFL players don't get. You know, you mentioned the idea of of learning about special teams, watching film, understanding things, you know, that certainly go beyond just the the act of of swinging a leg and then, you know, making contact with a ball. And so I I did a podcast maybe about 
two, three months ago with Norm Chow, who was an offensive coordinator for the Titans. Yeah. And, and one of the unique anecdotes he gave was I asked him about working with Steve McNair in Tennessee, because when he got to Tennessee, you know, Steve McNair already uh, had been a guy who won an MVP and, you know, was on his way to, you know, an amazing career. So it's not like he had to mentor him like a young player. And I said, so what did Steve really want to know from you? And he said, well, it's interesting. What Steve wanted to know every week was where the issues were in our protection. He would say, just tell me where the problems are and then I'll work all week to try and figure it out when we go through our practice reps and I'm, I'm curious from your standpoint what do you want to know going into a game every week like do you want to know if if the other team has a guy that comes off a certain side for field goals and has a you know a better chance of blocking or do you not want to know those things because it just makes your your eyes peek in different directions or or maybe takes your focus away from the strike of the football well all those things are definitely a competitive advantage you're you're, you're looking for ways uh to give yourself more time, get away from one of their better rushers. You're obviously looking into uh, get off times. You know, you're trying to, is there a fake available? Is, you know, there a way to slow them down in some capacity? But I think there's also ways throughout every other phase of the game that can help you in field goal, field goal block too, right? So uh, we're always trying to find those small nuances. To me, nothing really bothers me. Um, especially at my age, I think the big part about it is, is how can I gain just a little bit of two or three inches from the guy that's their best guy coming off the block to kick, uh, to give us a chance to make all our kicks and, and be, uh, you know, there's not a lot that a field goal block team can do. Whereas the, uh, to come and get the, the kick, right. It's either going to be blocked in the a gaps or come off the edge or jump right. through the outside. Right. So, for us, we have the ability that, you know, we can move things around um, that they can't do and adjust to, which is nice even in in-game scenarios. What was it like for you to go through the pre-draft process? Because, you know, again, for a, a position where you're more specialized, it's it's certainly not, you know, the same as going through uh, all the other pro day and combine type stuff that, that guys do for skill positions. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't get invited to the Combine. Uh, all the guys that got invited to the Combine that year, um, Mike Nugent, I believe, Dave Rayner, uh, Nick Novak. Uh, you know, Nick and Mike have had great careers themselves. Dave Rayner had uh, a little bit, a couple years in the league. I'm kind of the last guy in my class standing. Um, I think Tyler Jones was another one out of Boise State. Uh, you know, I think for me the biggest thing was um, doing the pro day. I had a couple private workouts. Uh, I knew that I probably wasn't going to be a drafted player. Uh, I even think that guys that were drafted aren't even playing anymore. Uh, <laughs> Mike Nugent just finished with Arizona um, this season. But, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing for me was I didn't care where I went as long as I could learn and have an opportunity to either compete for a job or to set myself up for another opportunity. And that's why I chose to go to New England. They are coming off their third Super Bowl. Uh, if anybody was looking to pluck somebody off their team, it was probably going to be New England. So I learned from one of the best in Adam Vinatieri. I mean, Josh Miller and Lonnie Paxton, Brad Steely, Bill Belichick. Um, you know, I, I love that 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 team. I love that group. Uh, they treated me uh, incredible, uh, and they didn't have to do half the stuff that they did. Um, but that was just part of the culture in New England, and I'll be forever grateful for that. I think partly because of, you know, my own soccer background and the fact that, you know, because I played for so many years and, you know, still play in men's leagues and stuff, I can, I can, uh, if not sympathize, at least maintain a higher level of interest in the strike of the football than, than some of the other reporters who maybe didn't have a, a soccer background. And so when I was covering the Packers one summer uh, in training camp, I wrote a story about their special teams coordinator and I called an old kicker. Uh, it was The coordinator was Ron Zook at the time and I called Norm Johnson who had kicked for him when he was with the Steelers, um, when Ron was with the Steelers. And, you know, one of the interesting things that, that Norm said was, you know, part of the reason why I liked having Zook as a coordinator was he wasn't afraid to admit what he didn't know. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, the majority of special teams guys don't have soccer backgrounds or backgrounds where they kicked a football. So they're not going to try and necessarily give me any kind of golf swing style pointers about the way I'm striking the ball or the angle of my uh, ankle is my ankle all the way locked, whatever the case may be. And so they kind of left it up to us, you know, the kicker and punter to to work ourselves out and, and figure out how to do it. And so I guess this is kind of a two part question. The first part would be in your mind, what 
is the best way for a special teams coordinator who maybe doesn't have a kicking background to help kickers and punters? And then B, do you guys look to maintain private kicking coaches the way private receivers coaches and quarterbacks coaches have become all the rage now for a lot of guys in the league? From uh, the perspective of coaches in the NFL, I think there's just a handful of guys who, who really truly know kicking. I think you're seeing a swing of coaches being uh, hired as ex-kickers who come in and help with some of the, the techniques and things on game day to be able to manage. I think, you know, a lot of it comes down to, you know, checking your ego at the door. Um, and I think that's part of how coaches gain their respect is, hey, let me help you and you help me. Um, and I think, you know, there's a handful of guys that still have uh, kicking coaches that they go to uh, outside of the, the people that are on their staff. Um, and I think that's just part of the nature of how these, these guys grew up. I don't have a specific kicking coach. I think, um, you know, you can rely on people to call and have, you know, a set of eyes on you from time to time. But if there's a guy that I, I, I would most likely use for that is my brother who's coaching sure. for Denver Broncos. So. You know, I'm using him on a daily basis. I'm using him as an extra set of eyes because he can see all our film. So uh, the nice part is, is we're, we're I have a great rapport uh, every week of with my brother to be able to carve some time out with him through his coaching schedule, which is difficult uh, to just go through film and hey, what's going on in the league right now? What you see from this team? They played him a couple weeks ago, um, and that's been able to help me over the last four or five years of my career. When it comes to technique and, and the, the swing of the leg through to hit the ball, because you are so um, elite at that and you've done it for so long, when you watch other kickers in the league, can you pick up on things about the way that they strike the ball or the way that they kick, the way that you know maybe a, a golfer can look at another golfer or a basketball player can look at another shooter and, and admire something or pick up something from their shooting stroke or golf swing? For sure. I think a lot of it just comes down to, you know, we get a chance to watch everyone's film too. So uh, we write a report up every week on the guy we're playing. We watch about a year or two of their film, um, get all their tendencies. So that kind of helps you understand the guys in the NFL, but also check out their swings and implement some stuff into your uh, game plan, whether it be just kicking or whether it be situationally uh, that can help us win and get us better prepared for, for those situations when they come at you so fast because you have to make pretty quick decisions in the NFL on what type of kick, how, so you rely on that film to kind of help you through those situations. Are there any guys you can think of off the top of your head that you've watched in the league that just had really unique or, or unusual kicking strokes but found a way to make it work for them? Well, I think you have to break it down, not necessarily by their stroke. I think you have to break it down by categories, right? I think there's some guys who are technique guys. Um, there's some guys like Janikowski who has a huge leg. Dustin Hopkins has a huge leg. So you can look at like their kickoff stuff and try to figure out technique-wise, like how can I get better at kickoffs? Um, I think from a game-winning perspective, guys I look at are like Matt Prater, Adam Vinatieri. You know, you just kind of watch their groupings of those kicks and try to figure out what they do in those moments to make you more successful. So. For me, I don't think it's like, hey, this guy's swing or that guy's swing. I think it's more like categorical. Um, and I have my own little recipe for what I pick and choose, take away from each guy. And um, I also got to understand I'm 38, right? I'm not the <laughs> third year in, in the league player anymore, too. So, um, you know, just capitalizing on some of the things that these guys do and, and, and making sure that you add it into your toolbox. Uh, to be able to utilize long-term, and I think that's why I've been able to sustain such a long career. Was Adam welcoming to you that first camp in 2005? Yeah, it was great. You know, obviously, he was on the last year of his deal, and uh, I think here's a young guy coming in that they had in practice squad to be a camp leg, which I definitely was, <laughs> you know, which was great for me because I got a lot of opportunities, and um, it was fun to compete against him because I just took the mentality that if I can compete against him, I can compete against anybody in the National Football League. And I went out and had a really good camp. Uh, I didn't get a whole lot of opportunities uh, in training camp, which in games, which was fine. Uh, but eventually I got an opportunity in Baltimore and then Chicago, and then my career kind of took off from there. So uh, he's definitely a guy I have a lot of respect for and appreciate being around just to learn the nuances of recovery and weightlifting and you know studying film and things to watch for. I and mean, I just learned so much from those guys that um, my career definitely was, shape uh 
in such a, a great way just because of them taking me under their wing. What were the emotions like for you when you get that chance in Chicago? Because you go to New England, you know you're a camp body, then you get a chance in Baltimore, that's over after a couple weeks, and then there's a few weeks where you're out of the league, and, and then you get the chance in Chicago, and like you said, you, you wouldn't have known this at the time, but you end up staying there for a decade and becoming you know the all-time leading scorer. But when you when you get that next chance, did it, did it feel like something where you, you thought you could turn it into a, a longer stay? Yeah, I think just the big part about it is is you just want to get an opportunity and then you don't want to lose the opportunity and uh, a lot of that goes into hard work weightlifting taking care of your body uh, recovery massage therapy studying film um, once I got the chance my biggest thing was is just don't let anybody ever take your job and you know fortunately enough uh, you know I've been cut once uh, and other than that I've had the ability to go out and compete against some great kickers that carved out some awesome careers for themselves and uh, I think competition is one of the, the healthiest and, and best recipes for having success. I think special teams coordinators a lot of times can be overlooked by fans just because they're not as glamorous or as in the limelight as a head coach or offensive and defensive coordinator. And when you were in Chicago, you know, Dave Tobe was there. And for those who don't know, Dave is, you know, now with the Kansas City Chiefs associate head coach in addition to special teams coordinator, regarded by many as one of the best, if not the best coordinator in the league. So good that he's gotten head coaching interviews, um, you know. And, and so I'm curious, when you when you go into a situation and you work with a guy like that was it clear right away and again hindsight would help you here now that you've been in the league for so many years but was it clear that Dave had, had a unique special teams mind for sure I just think a lot of the guys that I've been around Joe DiCamillis Chris Tabor uh, Brad Seeley all of those guys could be head coaches in the National Football League uh, you know special teams coordinators are operating uh, discussing every day with an offense and defensive coordinator general manager who's up who's hurt who's out you know, who's going to be elevated to offense or defense, and then you got to figure out who's coming up from practice squad. So not only that, but they talk to every guy on in the organization, let alone on the field or off the field, right? So these guys are managing every game situation. They're usually in most of those, um, except if they're offense or defense at the end of the half. You know, so there's a lot of guys who, you know, I don't think the special teams coordinator should be overlooked because they're just special teams coordinators. I think, you know, the big part about head coaches is how good is your staff, right? right? Do you have a great offensive coordinator? Do you have a great defensive coordinator? You know, can you relate to players? What's your philosophies in the building that you're going to bring to the players to have the most success possible? What are the game plans going to look like? Um, and I think there's probably a little bit of a stigma that needs to go away that, you know, guys like Harbaugh, he was a special teams coordinator, went yep. and did a position for one year. And Joe Judge, the same thing. Like, these guys are very, very – good at what they do and they're very good at communicating across the board which not every O and D coordinator in the league is going to be able to do that yeah absolutely and you know for Packers fans that may still listen who followed my work when I was in Green Bay I always loved writing about special teams because I think for you know a, a phase that again doesn't get as much attention it's just as important if not more so and can win or lose games just as much as offense and defense and so I loved learning about those guys and you know the fact that they're constantly having to deal with who's up and who's down injury wise and making adjustments on the fly with players who get hurt during a game because their guys are always getting taken for offense and defense it's it's in a lot of ways I feel like you know maybe a, a more hectic job in some respects and and one that certainly deserves um, a lot of respect and you know so as you go through that first season in Chicago and, and you start to you know get a chance uh and you're the starter and you're you're making kicks and you're getting into a groove and things you know when did you really start to feel kind of settled in like you, you had your place or or you knew that you know you were able to to cut it at that level and and keep a job you know for that season and then many seasons beyond well i think a lot of it has to do with just competing against the best guys to play in the game right i, I go to baltimore i'm competing against the guy matt stover adam Vinatieri. You know, there's a handful of people that at some point you got to realize, hey, I got it or I don't have it. And if you don't have it, you got to look to move on, right? So I kept getting calls. I kept getting opportunities. And then every day I wanted to go out on Sunday and beat um, the guy that I was going against and making sure we had a competitive advantage of making my kicks and finding nuances in the weather of Chicago to really embrace, you know, the 50-mile-per-hour winds or the bad field <laughs> conditions and I think for me, it was definitely more mental. 
than physical. Um, but I just knew that no matter what, I'd already gone through every situation I could potentially get to based on what I went through all week. Do you remember your first game-winning kick from that season in Chicago? It was against the Saints, and oddly enough, it wasn't even in the Superdome. It was at Tiger Stadium, I think, because I believe that was the year when Hurricane, hurricane Katrina year. came through. Yeah, yep. yeah. you know, it's funny. is one of my biggest kicks to start my career. I didn't start out great as three for six. Made a 29-yard game-winning field, and I jumped in one of the offensive linemen's hands, and he was holding me like a little baby, and it literally looked that way, so. <laughs> That's when I knew this game was a lot different than college. <laughs> That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Um, you know, the following year, one year after being a rookie, you have this unbelievable streak of 26 field goals in a row. And, you know, a lot of times in other sports, whether it's basketball or, you know, uh, specifically basketball because of the, the shooting element to it, you'll hear guys talk about being in, you know, being in the zone or being on a hot streak. And, and does it feel like that too when, when you just can't miss and, and you're hitting kick after kick after kick? Do you just kind of feel like it's, uh, you know, the, the goalposts are a mile wide to kind of use? a basketball analogy yeah I think a lot of it is just you know being really good in practice and finding that rhythm tempo timing and then a lot of it just comes down to confidence you know and, and a lot of that's built from uh, what you've done throughout Wednesday Thursday Friday practices when I was in Green Bay, there were a couple special teams coordinators, and some of them dedicated, uh, and again, this comes down to the head coach too, but some dedicated a lot of time to special teams in practice and some significantly less. And I was wondering, if did you always feel like you had enough reps during the week, or were there certain years, and I'm not asking you to call out specific guys, but just generally, were there years where maybe you didn't feel like you were kicking enough or you wanted to kick more? I've been really lucky. I've been around some great head coaches that give you plenty of opportunities to kick. And if we ever needed more, they gave it to us. And if we ever needed less, we didn't take it and gave that uh, time to other areas. So I've been really fortunate to have great special teams coordinators and great head coaches. What was um, what was the process like just kind of getting used to uh, November, December, January weather in Chicago? And, and by the end of your time there, did you feel like you pretty much had it down where it was going to have to do something, you know, almost biblical to really bother you? Well, I think a lot of it is, you know, the weather obviously changes, but it's a slow change. It's never like a 70 to 30 and snowing overnight, right? So I think the big part about it is you got a chance to kind of gradually get yourself used to the cold weather, acclimated to the wind that always happened. It didn't go away. Um, so I think, you know, in those places like Chicago, New York, uh, you got used to it cause the weather got, I would say dropped incrementally and didn't drop from uh, 70 degrees in San Francisco. Now all of a sudden it's 20 degrees in green Bay, right. In week 15. So I've been pretty lucky to, to have some of that happen. Um, and I think the other part about it is just mentally understanding that it's only for three three and a half hours right yeah exactly exactly um, I, I wanted i wanted to ask you does it hurt when you kick a ball and the wind chills minus 20 like it has been in certain days on on the lake there in chicago yeah i mean it definitely hurts um you have to get used to kicking in those conditions um i think it also takes a couple of days to recover from those conditions uh and for me i think the biggest part that hurts me is the, the middle part of my foot that's interesting. I never really thought of, I guess, how that would, but it makes sense. I mean, that would last a, a day or two into the week, at least, if not more. Um, what did it mean to you to become the franchise's all-time leading scorer, to have both the longevity and the success to, to achieve something like that in Chicago? Well, I think the big part for me was passing a guy like Walter Payton. I mean, <laughs> I, to be in the same sentence and category as one of the all-time greatest players in NFL history, let alone the legacy they had on and off the field, you know, it's just Chicago bear. That's the guy that you always tried to model yourself after. And, um, you know, I was pretty lucky to be able to play for some historical franchises. And, you know, I think, uh, if you play long enough, the points usually happen. If you play long enough, the field goal opportunities usually come, especially in an offensive minded league. But, you know, one of the biggest things that I'll always remember and cherish the most is just, um, the ability to, to, to look back and say you broke a record that would last 25 years, but you're able to break a record of a guy like Walter Payton. And, and to me, that's something that will always 
be very special to me and I think it's going to take a long time to obviously break so um a lot of hard work a lot of coaches a lot of teammates that helped me get there and uh we only get to go on to kick if somebody doesn't do or finish off the drive or their job so you know everyone has a hand in it for sure I think one of the things that's really admirable about your career is is the interest you've taken in the business side of football and, and you've been involved in some interesting contract negotiations from franchise tags to long-term deals to free agency uh to you know holding out a little bit here and there what has it been like to to learn about the business side of it you've also been very involved in cba as a player rep um and and why do you think that you know that side of it is important for players to understand because you know you and i both know and you'd know better than i would that there are guys around the league that you know don't understand it or don't make the right choices well, I think it helped me a lot being a player up just to understand what the business of football actually is. Uh, I think the second thing is I have a great agent. Uh, I have two agents, Jim Ivler and Brian Mackler, are sports stars. You know, they're part of one of the bigger organizations in the NFL. So, you know, you mix that with understanding, you know, your value and your worth and leverage and all those scenarios. You know, it's going to make sometimes these, uh, negotiations contentious is going to make sometimes uh, the ability to understand small nuances to get a deal done a lot more difficult than the normal, right? So for me, I think uh, I've always been an admirer of the business of football. It's probably the worst part of football, unfortunately. Um, but I also think if you can understand it and, and understand where they're coming from and understand what you, you want and need to make you feel comfortable, uh, usually deals get done, but I just think the business of football is so unique and has so many rules and try to help guys in the locker room that get cut or with an injury or second opinions. You know, I always try to be a leader in the locker room and, and being a player rep definitely helped me when it comes to the business of football. So I'll make sure guys got what they deserved and needed. Did you think that, um, well, I guess as a player rep and having that experience, how did you think this particular season with all of the, the craziness and unpredictability of a pandemic and all of the, you know, sort of the precautions and protocols that needed to be put in play, what was that like to kind of be part of and watch and, and be actively involved in? Well, it was definitely difficult, uh, I think, but everyone around the world was going through it, right? So for us to have a season, for us to go through a season and play a full season, finish the Super Bowl, uh, I thought the NFL, I thought the testing policies, I thought people in the building, organizations across the league. And for the most part, I think the players, you know, did a great job of understanding that it's not just about themselves, it's about other people in the building who may be high risk or your teammates who may be high risk that didn't opt out. And, you know, I think there's a big part of respect factor that goes into – uh, players having to play through a season of COVID, but listen, game planning and, and going through some of these situations, you didn't know at times whether or not you'd have a certain player. Uh, and that could have popped up on Sunday morning. That could have popped up on Tuesday afternoon. You just don't know. So uh, I thought everyone handled it really well. Uh, I thought they adapted the protocols as new circumstances came up and gave us an opportunity as players to be one safe two keep everyone else safe and three, uh, make sure that, you know, we worked with local governments. We worked with, uh, you know, the local hospitals and, and areas to help other people through COVID. Uh, and, you know, I think you see, you've seen a lot of that throughout the year, how much the NFL has probably impacted people, but also the communities uh, to help bolster testing sites and all this kind of stuff. So um, I'd applaud everybody uh, throughout the National Football League for what they did in their efforts. You know, in terms of non-football players, I feel like everyone, whether it's me, my friends, my neighbors, everybody either knows somebody who uh, had a family member that struggled with it or maybe they struggled with it themselves. And, you know, sometimes it's easy to forget that you guys are people too. So when you would go into the facility, you know, every day, was it the kind of thing where at least somebody in the locker room was saying like, man, you know, my aunt is really struggling right now or, you know, man, you know, somebody in my family had it and I'm, and I'm nervous. Like were guys nervous and uneasy about it at times? Yeah, I think obviously in the beginning you just didn't understand how it was going to operate. Obviously being something new and out of your control and understanding, I would say, what a new National Football League season would look like uh, and how you're going to adjust your lifting schedules or your massage therapies or you know any of these recovery protocols. 
Uh, it was definitely uneasy for a lot of guys in the beginning, but I think once you get in there and you see it and you understand the respect that everybody had for each other, it's something as silly as just wearing your mask, right? I think that's something that, you know, throughout the entire world right now, everyone can do just for their neighbor, right? Just to understand that it's, these things aren't just about one person. And that's what I love about a locker room. You know, it shows uh, the depth that shows, uh, the there's so many different people from different backgrounds and how people can come together uh, to really one common goal. Uh, and, you know, I think it shows a lot of people throughout the world, hey, if these guys can do it, we can do it too. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about before we, you know, head into this last section here is is about some of the work you've done off the field, which has been awesome and widespread and, and really admirable. And, and so I, I kind of would love to know a little bit about how you kind of came up with the idea for the Golden Touch Foundation and, and what it was like to, to put that together, um, obviously, as your career is continuing and, and what it's meant to you to be able to do something like that with the platform and the financial resources that you have. Well, I think a lot of it just came down to I didn't get to where I'm at today without a lot of help, right? And I want to do something for my hometown uh, and all in the city of Chicago is where I started as well. Uh, for places that I truly have a lot of admiration for and support, and I think what we were able to accomplish, and we're still doing with the Golden Touch in my hometown, we're building a, a state-of-the-art athletic facility for, for the youth in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. And then uh, here in Chicago, we're doing a lot of stuff with pediatric cancer. So uh, it means a lot to me to be able to give back. Uh, to start it uh, was something that I needed a lot of help to do, and there's a lot of great people uh, to help me go through decision-making processes and understanding grants and everything, building a board of people to help me get through um, the initial process. And, you know, I think the big part is we're making a huge impact on a lot of different communities. And it's fun to be able to watch these opportunities for people to either forget about the hospital or to go and create a, a, an environment for the kids to learn leadership, to learn accountability uh, and maybe one day they might get a Division One scholarship. Who knows? You know, when it comes to some of the events that you've had, you know, the golf tournaments in particular have been amazingly lucrative. You know, over $1.7 million raised for um, for the Ann and Robert Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. And, and so when, when you have an event like that, when you're able to call on maybe some old teammates or guys you know in the league or, or other celebrities as well, and, and they're willing to come and, and help you out or donate or chip in, um, what is that feeling like knowing that, you know, this game of football um, has been able to, to put you in a position to, to do those types of things where, you know, hey, $1.7 million is, is amazing. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, the majority of people in their jobs aren't able to, to organize something to give that back. Is it just, is it just kind of, I don't know, is it crazy to think of, you know, coming from a small town in Pennsylvania and now you're able to do things like that? Yeah, I think it's amazing. You know, I've had the opportunity to go to a lot of places and play in some amazing celebrity golf outings network some amazing people to to put on a golf outing that raised over a million dollars is definitely something that's very unique uh and it doesn't happen without a lot of sponsors a lot of celebrities or you know uh people who come and want to sit on the golf holes so you know it's i've been very lucky to to have a, a lot of great relationships with a lot of people uh that essentially helped me put that event on right so um, it means a lot. I mean, we've raised probably over three, three and a half million dollars for, uh, the hospital and, wow. you know, we're transitioning out to a place, Cal's Angels, which, uh, they've done a fantastic job getting into the research and granting wishes for these families that are going through some pretty hard times. And, you know, um, yeah, like I said, giving back is just ingrained in me and it'll always be ingrained in my kids as they grow up as well. Are you able to, uh, are you able to use Eventlify at some of your, your golf tournaments? Yeah, it's kind of how it started. I was putting on these events. I had two events in the same week. And, uh, you know, for me, I was sitting there with Microsoft Word, an Excel spreadsheet, sending out emails, <laughs> cross-referencing, telling someone I'll call them back at 10 at night. Um, I didn't find a software that was really big into marketing, and, and I didn't find a software that thought organizationally was doing anything great for me to cut down my time to be able to go sell it more to sponsors. So my brother-in-law and I, we started this company, Eventify, and it started off with just a golf sector to it. And now we're branched off into donation tracking campaigns. We have regular events and galas that we're running. Um, we have donation landing pages uh, that we can run through Eventify. So uh, we're working on an auction, a bidding uh, platform right now. So we're really going to be diversifying 
what we're able to do. But what's awesome about it is not only does it help me run these outings, it also helps uh, other organizations raise more money. And to me, it's been fun getting to know all these organizations that use it. And um, obviously, you know, businesses can use it for their own organizational perspectives or nonprofits can use it uh, to help them with all their events. And the nice part is, is, you know, what we wanted to do and and why we're successful is all these programs have niches and one might be a gala. One might be for golf. One might be for donation. And for us, we, we looked at it as though, well, why would I use and try to get to understand five different platforms? So we basically just said, you know what, let's build the hardest one first. And that was golf. And it took us about a year and a half. Um, and then we took what we thought was most important to those and branched off into these other ones. And, um, Avelify is definitely taking a life of its own, especially during the pandemic. That's really cool. That's really cool. Especially being able to do it with a family member. I imagine that makes it, makes it pretty fun too. Um, before we go, I got to ask you one last question, which is when, when I was in green Bay, every once in a while, you'd hear a little story about, um, you know, a, an amazing golf course or amazing place that, uh, some of the guys got to go play because, you know, whether they knew somebody or they just had an opportunity to get on at a, at a great course. And, you know, Aaron Rodgers used to talk about how amazing it was to get on at Augusta every so often. And, and you know, with somebody who enjoys golf as much as you do, I got to ask, what have been some of your favorite courses that you've had the opportunity to play either around the country or around the world? Yeah, I've been pretty lucky. You know, I haven't gotten out of the country yet to play, which is definitely one of my goals to do. Uh, I was able to play Augusta. That was unbelievable uh something i'll never forget i played that on my 30th birthday basically wow um and did you play from the tips uh, you know, I, uh we play with the members, members okay. tees, which is all we could handle anyway so it was perfect <laughs> uh you know we played medinas we've been able to go to pebble beach and play uh some of these amazing places and you know what's funny is some of the best places i've ever played haven't even been the top 100 i think those Knocking all of those off my list is definitely something I want to do. Uh, but I just love the game of golf. I love being in the cart with my kids in the summer playing with those guys. We'll load up. We'll play 18. They'll hit. They'll putt. They'd probably hit the snack shack more than they hit golf shots. But, <laughs> um, you know, it's just some fun three and a half, four hours of time that I get to spend with my kids. Uh, and, you know, those are times that you can never take away from you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Robbie, thanks again so much for taking the time to join me on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, hopefully you guys have a great and restful off season with your family and hopefully a, uh, a COVID free season next year when everybody can get back to normal. So thanks again. I appreciate the time. Thanks for having me on and all the best and uh, stay healthy and safe. So there you have it, a conversation with San Francisco 49ers kicker Robbie Gold. I hope you guys really enjoyed that. It was a lot of fun for me, you know, especially, again, given my soccer background, I have kind of this unique interest in kickers and punters and onside kicks and and all aspects of their job. And not only that, but I think the mental part of it is fascinating too. I mean, you have guys who are only involved in a handful of plays a game and basically have the rest of the, the three hours of real time on a Sunday afternoon or a Sunday evening to kind of you know, stew with their own thoughts. And it takes a, a really tough, a really mentally tough person to, to not let, you know, all those nerves and all those, you know, potential uh, bouts of anxiety to influence what you do in those six to 10 plays that probably last a total of about, you know, two minutes of real time. And so I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for all kickers who can, who can last a long time in this league and who find ways to become, you know, some of the better players on their teams. And, and in Robbie's case, one of the better kickers in NFL history. So huge credit to him and, and thank him very much for carving out the time to join me. So if you enjoyed this episode as well, I encourage you to check out other episodes we have. They're all available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, Pandora, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. As usual, I ask if you're listening on an Apple device, please leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment. I, I check all the feedback my, myself, and it's great to, to hear from you guys whenever I'm able to put out a new episode. And the ratings, of course, help with the uh, iTunes algorithm and, and make sure as many people as possible can find the show if they're looking for it and, and maybe catch the eyes of some new listeners as well. So thank you all for everyone who's given feedback so far, and I hope to hear from some more of you guys down the road. And until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon.